not just everybody else's sin, but my sin. I should have been on that cross. I should have been the one that was emaciated by that Roman soldier's lashing. I should have been the one that had my beard torn out and be spat upon. I should have been that one because I have offended a holy and a righteous God with my sin. for tuning in to the Removing Barriers podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm MCG. And we're attempting to remove barriers so we can all have a clear view of the cross. This is episode 65 of the Removing Barriers podcast. And in this episode, we will be discussing heaven and a holy God. And joining us in this episode is our usual suspect, DW. You're back. I am back. Thanks for having me back. Why do you keep, I keep on wondering? Back? Do what? Why do you keep on coming back? Well, you keep inviting me back, which I am very thankful for, by the way. Shift the blame on me, huh? <laughs> Even after I said to someone that I wouldn't consider you my friend. I am very hurt. I mean, I'm <laughs> devastated. Can you see the tears? Good. Good. I'm happy. It's the only hurt I can dish out on you. <laughs> well, welcome back and thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. And as I said in this episode, we'll be discussing heaven and a holy God. But before we dive into it, let's define heaven? How would you define heaven, DW? Well, the Bible talks about three heavens, actually. In Genesis 1-1, you know, a lot of people will quote that verse and say, in the beginning, God created the heavens. But the Bible actually says, in the beginning, God created the heaven, singular, and the earth. And then a few verses later, so that's Genesis 1-1. And then a few verses later in verse 7, it says that he separated the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And then in verse 8, it says that he called the firmament heaven. So there's outer space. That would be the first heaven. Then there's the sky, which God refers to as heaven as well. And those are both physical places. But then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven. And that's the place where God dwells. That's a spiritual place where God actually inhabits their angels there. A lot of people, when they describe heaven, they're actually describing the New Jerusalem with the streets of gold and so forth. But The third heaven is the place where God dwells. So that's the heaven that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, interesting fact. I never noticed that people will say heavens when the Bible actually say heaven in Genesis 1-1. So that's interesting. So why don't we distinguish between the New Jerusalem and heaven before we get into the meat of the episode? Because as you said, I think that a lot of folks, when they describe heaven, they're actually describing the New Jerusalem. Can the New Jerusalem be referred to as heaven as well? I mean, in a way, yes, because when the new heaven and new earth are made, then the new Jerusalem is going to come down out of heaven and God is going to dwell with men. And so, you know, some people will say wherever God is, that's where heaven is, you know, because heaven is his dwelling place. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem will be dwelling there with God. So it's almost like the three places are really one, whereas the Bible gives the understanding that they are distinctly different, but they are at the same time sort of the same. It's sort of like a county or a rural municipality uh, like we have in Canada. And then inside of those areas, the county or the RM, then they've got cities and so forth. And so, you know, even though they are distinctly different, they're all still part of the same thing. So yes, in a matter of speaking, the new Jerusalem and heaven are essentially the same. You could look at them that way. I think it's a fair thing to do. Just to clarify, does that mean that the New Jerusalem is basically the third heaven coming down physically that we could see it in this realm? Is that what you mean, or am I misunderstanding you? 
The Bible says that the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven, actually. That's why I say they're different, but that's going to be the ultimate dwelling place of saints. So they could essentially be seen as the same thing. But since that's the ultimate or the, the eternal dwelling place of the saints with God, they are essentially the same. These things are kind of hard to understand. When you look at the dimensions of the new Jerusalem, it's like the size of the United States. So it's enormous. We can't even really understand this huge cube that's the length and height and breadth of the United States coming down out of heaven and coming down to earth. But that's what the Bible says. So that's what's going to happen. Like I said, that's the ultimate dwelling place of all the saints. Heaven and earth will essentially be now one. They won't be separated any longer because God will dwell with men. So it's kind of hard to make a distinguish. It's sort of like trying to understand the difference between the soul, the body, and the spirit. I mean, where does the spirit and the soul and the body end? And where does the, the other one begin? It's really difficult. It's like three overlapping spider webs, which where does the first spider web end and the second spider web begin? You know, it would be really hard to figure that out. So. Right, right. Second Corinthians 12, when Paul is talking about the guy he knew being caught up in the third heaven, he also refers to it as paradise. Are they one and the same then? So is it right to say that third heaven is paradise? I would say so. I would say so as well. Okay. I would okay. say so, definitely. All right, so that's the definition of heaven. And we're going to be talking about, for the purpose of this podcast, the third heaven or the throne of God where God is. At some point throughout the podcast, we might interchange heaven with the New Jerusalem, but our goal is not to get anyone confused, but as DW said, at some point, this seems to intertwine and be the same thing. Hence, the reason why when other folks describe heaven, they're actually describing the New Jerusalem. But we'll try to make the distinction as we go to the podcast, but if you want to think about both of them as the same, no one will get on you for that. So I think we already touching this a little bit, but is heaven a real place? What would you say, Jay? Do you think heaven is a real place? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think heaven is a real place. Some people, when you talk to them, they would say that heaven is what we make of our life on earth right now. Heaven and hell is here, they would say. So it's just this idea of how we can live comfortably or our best life now, as a smiley preacher would say. But the Bible makes it clear that it's a very real place. It describes it in concrete terms, describes it as a place that we go to upon death, those of us that die in Christ. The Bible describes heaven in terms of what we'll be doing there, what's actually already there. DW mentioned the New Jerusalem. You put the caveat ahead of time about the minor distinction there or, or trying to blur the lines there. But the descriptions that the Bible gives of heaven would indicate that it is actually, in fact, a real place. Yep. DW? Yeah, I would say for at least three reasons that heaven is a real place. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke about heaven as a real place. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So that'd be the first reason, because Christ spoke about heaven as a real place. The second reason I would give is that the Bible talks about it as a place where God dwells. In Matthew 5, 34, it says, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. In the same chapter, verse 43 through 45, it says, And ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, 
and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. I would also lean on Matthew 6, 9 and Luke eleven two 2 as well, which all talk about God dwelling in heaven. And then the third reason I would give as to why heaven's a real place is that it's a place from which Lucifer fell. In Isaiah 14, 12, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Yep, definitely. I will just put in my two sentences. Heaven is as real as God is. Because, you know, if heaven is not real and the Bible describes it as being God's throne, then God cannot be real if heaven is not real. So definitely would agree with you. How does the Bible describe heaven, though? Or can we even describe heaven in our own words? Yeah, there's several places in the Bible that give rough little glances here and there of heaven. But nothing, you know, not a whole lot of detail talks about in Ezekiel about the throne of God and there being a rainbow and so forth. Then, you know, when Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says that it's not lawful for a man to speak of those things. So he says that essentially God forbade him from actually describing the things that he saw. So we don't have a whole lot of description of heaven as it presently is, but we do know that there are holy angels there. Psalm 68, 17, Matthew 25, 31, Mark 8, 38, Luke 9, 26, 1 Peter 1, 12, Revelation 14, 10. So there are holy angels there, and the Bible paints the picture that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of angels. So there's billions of angels in heaven. And then it also paints the picture that the redeemed of the Lord dwell there. So Paul says at one point that if we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. And so since he dwells in heaven, that's where we would be if we died. So the redeemed of the Lord that have perished, that have died in this life, they're in heaven. We know that worship is ongoing there because Revelation chapter 4 and 5 both take place before the tribulation. So John breaks down the book of Revelation into three parts. He says, write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So John was currently seeing a vision of the Lord there in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, where he's interacting with the Lord Jesus Christ and so forth, and he's walking amongst the candlesticks. Then he gives John some letters to send to the seven churches which are in Asia. Those are the things which are. And then he says the things which shall be hereafter. And that's Revelation chapter four through the end of the book. And the tribulation doesn't actually start until Revelation chapter six. So right. chapters four and five, we could assume that what's taking place in those chapters is what's presently ongoing in heaven. And we see praise and worship and so forth of God in those chapters. So there are billions worshiping God in heaven presently the angels, the redeemed of the Lord. And then we also know that that's, again, where God's seated on his throne. Matthew 23, 22 says, And he that shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. So presently God's in heaven. So we don't know exactly what heaven looks like right now as such, but we know some of the things that are taking place there and some of the people that are there and so forth. Right. And this is where I'll probably make a distinction between heaven and the New Jerusalem, because you talk about Second Corinthians 12, verse 2 and 4, where Paul was caught up in the third heaven and he heard unspeakable words. And the way I would look at that is that a lot of folks believe that when John is talking about certain things, even in Revelation and the two witnesses, and the Bible talk about the whole world is going to see them at the same time. Think about it. If we go back just 50 years ago, that was practically impossible in our world. But today, no one will question that the whole world can see an event occurring live 
all of us at the same time because today because of the internet and because of technology we all have that stuff but john didn't have those words to describe the internet and to describe the things that he was seeing and i think that to some degree that was paul was saying in second corinthians paul literally did not have the words to describe heaven as he was seeing it mm-hmm. and i believe it's because a human language probably just can't describe the throne of God. Oh, sure. So I look at it that way. But also, I think the Bible gave a little bit more vivid description of the New Jerusalem when the Bible talk about how big it's going to be. The dimension is probably 1,500 miles long, wide and high. The Bible talk about, of course, the streets of gold, the 12 gates, also represented 12 tribes of Israel. The Bible talk about they're going to be streets of gold and they're going to be so pure that it's going to be like transparent glass. All this that is found in Revelation 21. I would agree with you, yes, heaven in and of itself, the throne of God, the Bible never gives us a deep, in-depth description of it. And I believe if we go from Second Corinthians, it's probably because there's just not words to describe it. But we do get a little bit more in-depth definition, description of the New Jerusalem, whether the Bible explained thoroughly in Revelation 21. Mm-hmm. Something about the New Jerusalem, though, if we continue reading in Revelation 22, verse 1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And the thing I want to point out is verse 2, In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life. This is the same tree of life that was in the garden, is it not? So then is this like a full coming, what do they call it when you come full circle? Like the way it began is the way it ends as well. And that's literally where, what am I trying to say? Like, is this purely physical? I mean, purely spiritual? Or is there physical elements to it as well? Oh, no. The New Jerusalem is a physical place. Yeah. I mean, you're hitting on something that's very crucial, but maybe slightly off the topic of exactly what we're discussing. But but when you see in Genesis, you know, God created the heaven and the earth. And then at the end of Revelation, he creates the new heaven and the new earth. In Genesis, you know, the opening chapters of Genesis, man is fallen or he falls. And in Revelation, man is restored. There's all these parallels between the beginning chapters of Genesis and the ending chapters of Revelation. Like there's dozens of them. So, got it. Yep. So, how would life in heaven be different compared to life on earth? Well, when we say heaven at this point, we're just going to use heaven and New Jerusalem interchangeably at this point, I'm assuming. Okay. So in the new heaven, there's not going to be any sickness. There won't be any disease or death. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26 says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And then in Revelation chapter 21, it says, and there shall be no more curse. And that includes all the things that came along with the curse, like the thorns and the thistles. Hopefully mosquitoes will be gone. There won't be more anymore as mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only thing you want to escape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I bet. There's a mosquito in Canada with all that cold. <laughs> oh, there's actually, there's lots of mosquitoes and they're huge. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Yeah, that's like the uh, the provincial bird. <laughs> <laughs> all right, um, and yeah, I was at the lake one day and I made hot dogs and then all these mosquitoes attacked my hot dog. And I'm thinking, this thing doesn't have any blood anymore. What are you doing? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so there shall be no more curse and God shall wipe away all their tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. For now we see through a glass. I think I mixed up my scripture verses there. But anyway, so 
all of the, the former things have passed away and that includes sickness, death, etc. So that's one way that the new heaven and the new earth will be different from the present earth. And some of the other ways that it will be different is the Bible describes us as fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ. So I don't know exactly what that means, but it does say in another place that we will reign with him in Revelation 22.5. So there's going to be something for us to reign over. The Bible talks about the kings of the earth bringing their sacrifices and their I'm sorry, not sacrifices. Actually, let me just go to the passage here. It says in Revelation 21, 24, and the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And that's talking about the, in the light of the new Jerusalem, which that light is God and the lamb. And then it says the second half of the verse, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, into the new Jerusalem. So it seems to me that there are some vague indicators that maybe there's going to be something made in the new earth, like a new race of people or something. I don't know. What was that verse, D.W., the kings that will bring their glory into it? What was that verse? Yeah, Revelation 21, 24 says, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And it's speaking of the new Jerusalem there. Got it. It mentions those same kings of the earth, I think, in chapter 22 as well. And I looked at a couple of commentators on this and people have different views and so forth. But it seems like it's possible that we're going to reign and what we're going to reign over is some additional creation, some people that are made after the new heaven and the new earth. So. Interesting. Yeah, definitely interesting. So we'll also worship God. And I mentioned there in Revelation 4 and 5 there where it says, you know, the 4 and 20 elders will cast their crowns at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it mentions in numerous ways throughout the book of Revelation that there's worship and adoration of the Lord taking place. So that's one thing that's going to be different. Even though we're able to worship him now, then we'll be able to worship him perfectly because sin and so forth won't be there anymore. We won't be hindered by those things. So we'll be able to perfectly worship God. We'll be able to commune with God face-to-face. The Bible gives us that comfort. We'll reign with God, like I said. We'll drink of the water of life freely there from the river and the fountain. We'll eat from the fruit, fruit of the tree of life. Some interesting things, though, that we won't do that will be different in heaven than on earth is we won't marry and we won't have children. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Bible tells us that the saints in the resurrection, Christ says that we'll be like the angels. We won't actually be angels, but we'll be like the angels, and we will neither be married nor given in marriage. And one of the purposes of marriage, obviously, is to have children. So we won't marry and we won't have children, but we won't grieve, we won't cry, we won't have pain, we won't die, we won't sin anymore. In Revelation 21, 27, it says, nothing that defileth will ever enter into the new Jerusalem. So that's a praise, you know, I won't have to struggle with sin anymore. I'm looking forward to that even more than no mosquitoes. (laughs) Amen. But there's one thing that really, um, you know, some people would say that we won't be able to pray in heaven, but I think that we will because Jesus Christ makes intercession for us and the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. So, you know, and those are two members of the Godhead and they're praying. I think that there will still be prayer offered. It talks about the prayers of the saints there in Revelation and so forth. But one thing that we definitely will not be able to do in heaven, and this is really convicting for me, is we won't be able to evangelize. The opportunity to evangelize will be over. Jesus says in John chapter 9, verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. Isn't that sobering? Yes. Because think about it. A lot of folks, now let me put it this way. I wrote an article called Five Reasons Why You're Not Soul Winning. And one of the points of that article was that it's because you don't have unsafe relatives. And I think a lot of folks, you know, may not have unsafe relatives and they 
wife and their children and their grandchildren are saved, so they don't see the need so much to evangelize. But it's sobering to think about that the fact that you won't have a chance to actually show someone their need for the Savior in heaven. And one of the reasons is because, you know, their faith would have become sight at this point. You know, it would no longer be by faith, it would be by sight. But it's sobering as I think about it. I know there's this guy that wrote a book, One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. And I know that's one thing he was talking about was evangelism. But it's sobering to think about it. Of all the good things of heaven, once we get there, we won't have a chance to bring anyone else with us. Yeah. You know? I think I've told you this story before. I used to go out door knocking with a fellow. He's in heaven now, but his name was Gary. He was in his 80s when I met him. And he would come out on visitation almost every week. Pretty faithful. I would say one of the most faithful people that would come out. And he had gotten prostate cancer. And then later that cancer had moved into his hip joints. And he would come out with a cane on visitation. And I sat down with him one time and I said, Gary, I said, I'm not trying to discourage you from coming out. I want you to come out. Please don't stop coming out. But I'm just curious, why do you keep coming? I mean, he had children in the ministry. He had grandchildren in the ministry. He even had a great grandchild that was preparing to go into the ministry. And he'd gotten saved as a postal worker and then, you know, just served the Lord faithfully. And he said to me, he quoted a verse out of Proverbs chapter 24, talks about the sluggard not plowing by reason of the cold, but in time of harvest, he'll beg. And I'm paraphrasing that a bit, but he said, well, DW, the reason that I continue coming is because I want to make sure that I have something to lay at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, that stuck with me. And, you know, I've often thought about that when I've been tempted to just sort of throw in the towel. <laughs> that conversation with Gary just has been an encouragement to me to keep me going and keep me wanting to go. I've studied out Romans chapter 14 and first Corinthians chapter three. And I, every time I study those things out, the judgment seat of Christ and so forth, I think of Gary. So, yeah. Yeah. That's another reason why it's so refreshing to know that the Lord will wipe away our tears because for me, looking at, you know, loved ones who may or may not be saved or friends or whatever the case may be, we're going to need that tear wipe away because or those tears wipe away because it's going to be a sobering time to see you know there's a song that coming to my mind i remember i dream i search heaven for you i search vainly to heaven for you and you know of course the song is not necessarily doctrinally correct the songwriters are saying they had a dream and they were looking for you in heaven and that's it's sobering when you think about it because are you going to go to heaven looking around for your loved ones, but they're not going to be there? It's great that God definitely wipe away the tears from your eyes because I can think of loved ones who have gone on, like uncles and aunts and stuff like that, which I don't know if they were saved, you know? And even brothers and sisters, all of them are still alive, praise the Lord. But I say praise the Lord because they still have an opportunity to be saved. But as I think about it, you know, I think one of the questions we asked in episode 64, can Christians truly enjoy heaven knowing that their loved one is in hell? And to me, it's just a sobering thought to think about it, but I'm glad that in heaven, God know our grief and know our sorrows and can wipe away those tears and no more sin and all the stuff you mentioned. 
But it's sobering to think that, yeah, we can't evangelize. And not only we can't evangelize, but at that point, no one is able to get saved anyway. So even if we were able to evangelize, they won't be able to accept him because at that point, as I mentioned earlier, it would be by sight and not by faith. And the Bible says, for by grace are he saved through faith, you know. So definitely is a sobering thought there. You're listening to the Removing Barriers podcast. We are sitting down with DW, our usual suspect, and we are discussing heaven and the holy God. We'll be right back. Antivirus software protects you from malware. But to protect your privacy and security on the web, you need a virtual private network or VPN. Did you know that Ivacy offers an easy-to-use VPN app for each of your favorite devices? From Windows, Macs, and smartphones to smart TVs, tablets, and browser extensions, and even gaming consoles. Get Ivacy for your choice of devices to secure your connection, browse with privacy, and access content from anywhere in the world. Go to ivacy.com or click the link in the show notes. Use coupon code Removing Barriers for a 20% discount. Okay, so we talked about what heaven is like, or at least how the Bible describes heaven. I wonder, what will we be doing in heaven? I know D.W. mentioned how in Revelation the kings will bring their glory with them into heaven. I'm sure there's room for debate and talk about that, but like he said, it implies some type of hierarchy, for lack of a better word, governing of things. We will be reigning, as D.W. said. We will be praising God. That's clear in Scripture as well. One thing I found interesting is that in Revelation 6, and I think it's verse 10, those that have been slain for the testimony that they have in Christ are asking God, how long until you avenge our blood? So it's interesting that in heaven, not all of our questions will be answered. I mean, a lot of things will come clear. A lot of questions will be answered. And yet God is so inexhaustible that there are still questions that... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So... I suppose people think that because we get to heaven, all of our questions will be answered and there's nothing to discover and it's just going to be this. But I think the Bible makes it clear that even up there, even in heaven, that there's room for discovery. Revelation 6 seems to imply that there's room for discovery. So there's room for discovery, there's room for dominion or reigning or hierarchy or that sort of thing. Many of the things that are familiar to us here on earth will most likely continue in heaven. But what else will we be doing in heaven? Well, I want to, I'm going to let DW come in on some of this, but I want to dispel a common myth or common depiction, even by Hollywood and cartoons and stuff like that. They always depict someone going to heaven and they're sitting on a cloud playing a harp or stuff like that. Or sleeping or... Oh yeah, we won't be doing that in heaven. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere that we'll be, you know, sleeping on clouds or sitting on a cloud playing the harp. But if you look at Revelation 22, 3, again, talking about the New Jerusalem, he said that we'll be serving the Lord. These have mentioned this. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. He talk about Revelation 22, 5. There he said we shall reign with him forever. These have mentioned that as well. And Revelation 22, 3, they refer to the servants who are serving God. It appears somehow that we will reign with him as well. So definitely we'll be doing something in heaven will be working in heaven a lot of folks believe of course at that point because there won't be sin work wouldn't be a burden like it is on earth at this point so i believe we'll be doing some sort of work in heaven but of course we're not going to be sitting in clouds playing harp 
or man in the gate of heaven like like it's depicted in cartoons that's not what we do in heaven but definitely i believe we'll have work you know revelation 22 5 and there shall be no night there no need of candle neither light of the sun for the lord giveth light and they shall reign forever and ever with him so definitely will we have some sort of task some sort of work which is not burdensome because work on earth is burdensome because of sin and sin won't be there Mm -hmm. yeah as you're saying this you're making me think of ezekiel chapter 44 where you have this dichotomy in the priesthood pictured there were some priests that when the people went off and started worshiping idols and so forth they sort of went along with the people in that and then there were the sons of zadok that didn't go along with the people and they were faithful to the lord and he is talking about how the ones that went with the people their charge in the millennial reign and i know that's not heaven exactly but their charge in the millennial reign is that they will continue serving the people but the levites the sons of zadok that kept the charge of the sanctuary that did not go astray from the lord he says that they shall come near and minister unto me and they shall stand before me. And he says, they shall offer or they shall enter into my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table. They will minister unto me. He says, they will keep my charge. And he says that it will come to pass that they'll be clothed with linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister in the gates of the inner court. And the reason no wool he explains is because it causes sweat. He says, they shall have linen bonnets upon their heads and they shall have linen breeches upon their loins. And they shall not gird themselves with anything that causeth sweat. And he continues to say, they'll minister unto me and so forth. So there's this nearness that's pictured, you know, in, in the new heaven. Yeah, there'll be work, but nothing, like you said, that causeth sweat. It will be a pleasure to serve God and to come near into his presence. So actually, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of people tend to think that work is a result of the curse, but work existed before the curse. Oh, yeah. Or after the fall. I mean, after the fall is when the Lord mentioned anything about sweat, by the sweat of your brow will the earth give forth its fruit. Yeah, Adam and right. Eve worked in the garden before sin, right? and it became burdensome like said, it... after they sin. Mm-hmm. That's yep. when it became burdensome, so definitely. Another myth, what we do in the heaven, playing the harp on the cloud, another myth is that, and again, this is something that Hollywood depicts a lot, that, oh, someone has gained their wings. Like, you know, I had a friend slash co-worker who's, husband passed away after 25 years of marriage and as i was reading his what was the word eulogy eulogy they were saying that he gained his wings on such and such a date and and sometimes we imply that people will become angels after they die praise the lord that my co-worker husband according to what i read said that he knew jesus as his savior but it begs the question do we become angels in heaven I know DW, you already answered that and said no, but dive a little bit deeper and dispel that myth a little bit more. Why is it that we don't become angels in heaven? Well, on earth, we were created a little lower than the angels, the Bible says. But it also says that the angels are ministering spirits. It talks about them being on fire and so forth. I mean, but the Bible never pictures the saints, the redeemed in heaven in such a way. So, yes, there'll be some work potentially that won't cause sweat but you know it does say that we'll reign it never says that angels shall reign and in fact in the bible it said christ talking to his disciples said that they would judge angels so there's a constant distinguishment made between the saints and the angels so i would have to say no we don't become angels 
First Peter 1.12 also makes that distinction between us and the angels. Here, is, of course, it's talking about the things of God and Scripture and all of that sort of thing. But unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us did they minister these things, which are now reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. And then this is the part I want to bring attention to, which things the angels desire to look into. Mm -hmm. The angels have never experienced the salvation of God. They've never experienced what we've experienced. And that is another sharp distinction between them and us. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I would say that we don't become angels. We're already so fundamentally different from them. D.W. mentioned that we're made a little lower than the angels and things of that sort. But that verse also kind of irons that out. Yeah, and as you talk about that, there's this hymn that came to my mind that I'm going to read some of the text here. I just remember it as D.W. was talking. The first stanza said, They're singing up in heaven such as we have never known, where the angels sing the praises of the Lamb upon the throne. Their sweet harps are ever tuneful, and their voices always clear. Oh, that we might be more like them while we serve the Master here. And the chorus says, Holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing Redemption's story, they will fold their wings. Mm-hmm. For angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely, I think that we have to dispel that maybe because angels, they cannot be saved. They cannot be redeemed. They cannot feel the joy that our salvation brings. And of course, in Psalm 8, the Bible talks about, of course, that these have been mentioned, they remain to be known on the angels. But one of the reasons I think that we are definitely not going to be angels when we get to heaven. It's because angels, just like us, are created beings. You know, the Bible talk about in Ezekiel 28, 13, you know, the Bible says, in the day that thou was created. So it's showing that angels were created, were created beings. And you can look at Job 38, verse 4 and 7, which give us an idea when in creation they were created. The Bible says, the sons of God shouted for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. So some period did, angels were created. The Bible didn't tell us exactly when, but we can have a semi-good idea when, a time frame when they were created. But they are created beings. So it's not like the Lord made humans and every time a human die, go to heaven, then they, they go to another angels. We're not going to gain wings. We can praise the Lord that we're going to be like him when we see him, for we know we shall be like him. But we're mm-hmm. not going to become angels. And quite honestly, I prefer not to become an angel because I like the joy to know that I was redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Angels were never redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. And even the fallen angels cannot be redeemed by the precious blood of Christ because Christ did not die for them, but he died for me. And that, to me, is way better than to become an angel. Just my opinion. Well, one thing I thought of as we were saying all this is the angels are never depicted as being a part of the bride of Christ. Yep, that's true. What a better position to be in than being an angel, being a part of the bride of Christ. We won't become angels, but we won't be like we are now, right? Like our bodies will be different, right? I don't want to say that we'll become, you know, like the angels in the sense that, you know, they have wings and they're described the way they are but our bodies will be an upgrade won't we like oh, of course. won't we yeah. be able to like I'm, think of a place i'm and gonna be, be at least six feet tall <laughs> <laughs> well keep on praying brother <laughs> <laughs> but yeah definitely the bible talk about glorified bodies bible says when we see him we shall i'm blushing like the verse we shall be like him like him yep we'll be like him for we help me out with the verse yeah first john three one and two behold what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us 
that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Yeah, def- definitely. So that's the, the verse I'm trying to quote, but I was pushing in. So definitely, mm-hmm. we'll have glorified bodies. We'll be like him. And praise the Lord for our salvation. Amen. It shows that the Lord value us so much that he would die for us. And mm-hmm. again, the Bible talk about even the demons believe and tremble. And I remember when I was a teenager, this guy came to my country and he was from another Caribbean country, came over and he was preaching. The title of the message, if demons could, they would. And his premise here was that if demons could repent and obtain salvation and obtain heaven, they would, but they can't. They talk about the verse of the Bible say that the demons believe and tremble. And I think about it, of course, I've never really dug into that scripture to see if what he was trying to draw out is biblically sound or whatever the case may be. Would a demon actually repent if he could? I don't know. The Bible did not say that in exact terms. But it's amazing if you just think about it that they can't repent. They can't confess this sin and be safe, but we can. And that yeah, There's a, no way for them to regain their first estate. Exactly. But we can be restored and just to Jesus Christ. And we can obtain heaven and be like him through the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's definitely a position that, hey, you know, if anybody be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. For he had made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Our position in Christ is an amazing position. Amen. And I think it's a position that is, quite honestly, maybe better than the angels. But I could mm-hmm. be wrong. But it's an amazing position when you think about our position in Christ. I do have to slightly correct something I said earlier. I said Jesus said that the disciples would judge angels, but it was actually Paul said that to the church at Corinth. Okay. Great. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, just the idea that salvation doesn't bring us to zero. I mean, if salvation just brought us to zero, we would have to continue trying to be good to maintain zero. But God, in the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, paid infinitely more that we can never exhaust. I mean, salvation for us is just an absolute amazing thing. I remember there was a preacher that came to preach at our church back in Virginia one time, and he said to the youth, he was preaching to some teenagers, and he said to those teenagers that, you know, salvation is not a normal thing. We will never even smell like smoke. You know, it's just an amazing thing. We'll never even Amen. feel the flames of hell. Amen. It reminds me of the, the three Hebrew boys and the flame of fire. They came out, they didn't even smell. Yeah. Like smoke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's change gear a little bit because I think this question is going to be very important to Americans more so than people from the Caribbean. But will animals and pets be in heaven? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't think so. I don't see that in scripture anywhere. It's a nice thought. I mean, there are going to be beasts in heaven, but I don't see anywhere where it talks about animals going from earth to heaven. So unfortunately, no. Yeah. Sorry, Bruno. Bruno might not be there (laughs) with you. (laughs) Yeah. In heaven, will we recognize friends and loved ones that we knew on earth? You know, for a long time, I have said, absolutely. I think that's true. And I would have quoted 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where it says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. Or yeah, I misquoted that. But then shall I know even as also I am known. (laughs) Sorry, a little bit of a tongue twister there. But I would have quoted that verse, but then I looked at that recently with a friend, and I don't think that's actually talking about 
how we're known in heaven as such. So I started thinking about that and I wasn't quite sure, but then I started looking at things like Matthew 17, where Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount with Christ. Mm -hmm. And both of them are recognized even by the disciples. Right. And then it says in Matthew 8, 11, and I say unto you that many shall come from the East and West and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So that's future tense. And those of us who come from the East and West and so forth and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, clearly we're going to recognize them as still those people. Otherwise, naming them there would be completely pointless. Right. And I know that this is in heaven as such, but in the millennial kingdom, there are going to be people that are reigning over different parts of the earth. And you can see that in Ezekiel. And Jesus is going to actually rule from the, the temple in Jerusalem. But it says that David shall be the prince in Jerusalem. So even though Christ is ruling the whole earth from the millennial temple, David is actually going to be sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, in the palace in Jerusalem, ruling Jerusalem. So even he's going to be known during that time. And obviously then it wouldn't make any sense for him to not be known after that. So I think it's fascinating. I think the Bible gives the idea that, yeah, we'll be known by loved ones and even by people that we have never met before, potentially. Because the disciples, as far as we know, never met Moses and Elijah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going <laughs> to say. They, was. How would they even know what those men looked like? So it must be known in a different, the recognition yeah. must be a different level of recognition. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with you that we'll definitely know the loved ones and friends that we don't hurt. I wonder if we were able to give anyone nicknames because I definitely have nicknames for you already, DW. I don't think so. <laughs> What do you even say to that? While well, he's thinking about what to say. I just want I him to ask me what the nickname is going to be. You know, I was tempted to, but I think I'm not going to. <laughs> well, I won't tell you then. But yeah, that's cool. I definitely believe we're going to be able to recognize. But the Bible did say we're going to have a new name. Yeah, I was going to say, no? mm -hmm. we will be given new names. So, But... I don't think the Lord is going to let you give me a new name, though. I don't think that's going to happen. But I hope I can give you a nickname or something. <laughs> At least that. I'm telling you, if I get to heaven and you walk up to me with a stone and you're writing on it as you're handing it to me, <laughs> I, I might not take it. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You probably wouldn't have a choice there. Uh, we'll see. That probably might be mandated. <laughs> we won't go there, though. All right. When does someone actually go to heaven? I think the Bible gives two instances when someone goes to heaven other than, well, maybe three, I guess, you know, Paul went to heaven. He got caught up to the third heaven. Mm -hmm. John, you know, in Revelation chapter four, the spirit said, come up hither. And so he got caught up to heaven. Elijah got raptured up in heaven. So anyway, I'll stop sort of beating around the bush here. I think the two main times that the Bible gives that people go to heaven is the moment that they die. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 6 through 8 says, whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. In verse 8, it says, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So since he's in heaven, when we're absent from the body and we're present with him, we're in heaven. Then the other one I would give is the rapture. You know, we'll be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord in the air. And then it says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that is just before the tribulation, potentially up to two years. I won't, you know, get into why that might be two years, but there could be a two-year period in between when the rapture actually occurs and the tribulation starts. But anyway, so that all takes place before the tribulation, the rapture does. So we'll be in heaven with him for somewhere between seven and nine years before we come back. He touches down on the Mount of Olives. The whole geography of Israel has changed. Millennial rain happens. So 
the two times or the two places, I guess, two instances where someone goes to heaven and how they get there is the moment that they die or the rapture. Yeah, definitely. I would say, of course, when they take the last breath, when the rapture happened as well. I want to run something by you, DW, and see what you think. And also, Jay, you can chime in if you want to. So I was talking to a friend of mine, and this person do not believe that we go to heaven right away. And of course, they use Second Corinthians 5, 8, and they were saying that, of course, we are misinterpreting that scripture. You see, of course, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And the question the person challenged me with was, are we absent from the Lord right now? And of course, in my response, because I think he was taking the scripture grossly out of context, my question for him back was, are we absent from the body? Because clearly, if the Bible is saying we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord, yes, we can claim and we can say that we're present with the Lord now, but also we can't say that we're absent from the body because we're still alive. So clearly, the present with the Lord there means something different than when you say we are in the presence of the Lord. So how would you combat that, DW? First, I would sort of sympathize with the person a little bit from the standpoint that Elijah did say, like when he went to Ahab, he said that he was standing before the Lord and you see various prophets and so forth in the Old Testament. And you even see Jesus saying that he's in the bosom of the Father while he's on earth and so forth. So there is the understanding scripturally. I mean, it, it even says that we are blessed in heavenly places. It says, oh, so I'm sorry, I'm misquoting that. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus in Ephesians chapter one. So already in a manner of speaking and in a spiritual sense, we are already in Christ and he's already, you know, he's in heaven. And so we're in him. So technically you could almost say that our spirit is already in heaven with the Lord. But in first Corinthians chapter five or six, since he's going to say, you know, bring that up at the end of the verse number eight there in verse six, it says, whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Very clear. So what Paul is talking about is a new body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he talks again about the same kind of thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about a distinguishment from a physical standpoint. So like I said, spiritually speaking, I'm already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, but physically I'm not in heaven. And I know that we're talking about a new body and that new body is not going to be a physical body. It's going to be a spiritual body, but at the same time, it's going to be a new body and it will have some sort of physical characteristics. And I would lean on verses like Luke chapter 16, where it talks about the rich man and Lazarus and Abraham talking to him and so forth. So they still have speech. They still have sight. They still have senses and so forth. So that's what Paul's talking about in first Corinthians chapter five. He's talking about physically being in this body. I'm absent from the Lord in verse six. And then when I'm absent from this physical body, then in my new body, I'm going to be present with the Lord in heaven. Yep. So Jay, tell me why won't God just allow everyone in heaven? Real quick, before I answer that question, I think there's one more thing that we need to expound on. Go ahead. Because there's a market in the world today for people who sell their stories of having died and gone to heaven and come back and all that sort of thing. So I think DW's explanation really knocks all of that out of the park. These people prey on people because in our heart of hearts, we desire to be I hate to use that God-shaped hole analogy, but we desire a connection with the eternal. We desire to know what's beyond death. And so people come up with these stories of having been 
dead for quite some time and then come back. I think it's a fascination rather than trying to fill a God-shaped hole. I think it's just a fascination, Probably of, a fascination. of the unknown. It's like when something happened that's mysterious, people are like, oh, what happened? I think mm-hmm. it's more of that itching ears kind of thing more mm-hmm. than sound doctrine, but... That some people would, yeah, some people would make argument or allowance for it because there are examples in scripture of people having done that or. Yeah, Lazarus, but Lazarus didn't come back and talk about, at least the Bible didn't mention anything like that. Or so. people being caught up in heaven and all that sort of thing. I just wanted to point that out because someone might be listening to this podcast thinking that that stuff is real because they may find some trace of it in scripture, but just wanted to point out that it's not yeah, with stuff like that, like if I'm talking with somebody and they start bringing up out-of-body experience or something to that effect, honestly, I don't generally like debate or discuss those things at length because if I don't find it like super helpful, just like they can't argue with my testimony, I will sometimes say to people that when I got saved, it was almost like the Lord Jesus Christ was in the room with me. Now, I didn't see a vision in my soup or like a light didn't shine down from my ceiling or anything like that. Like, so I don't mean it in that way, mm-hmm. but in a manner of speaking, yeah, he was in the room with me because he's omnipresent and so forth. But I've had people stop and, you know, like, want to discuss that at length, like he was in the room with you and so forth. So I have to be careful about my wording. But what I mean here, though, is they can't really debate me on my testimony. I'm the one that experienced it and so forth. And I'm not saying that their experience is valid or not valid, but they think it's valid at least. And so for me to And I'm not saying, honestly, to be honest with you, whether out-of-body experiences or like, are there any where a person did actually go to heaven and come back? Honestly, I don't know. I'm not sure if the body or if the Bible really, you know, I mean, the Bible does give plenty of experiences where someone went to heaven and, you know, Paul there, and like we mentioned, John and Elijah is going to come back. Some people think he's one of the two witnesses there in Jerusalem and so forth. So I just don't typically like have a long discussion with somebody. If they tell me that, I might even listen to their story and say, well, that's really interesting and so forth. And I don't try to tell them that their belief is right or wrong because usually doesn't help anybody. Yeah, I usually listen for anything that's unscriptural. Because if you yeah. don't just say you go to heaven and you start talking about unscriptural stuff that, you know, or you say you saw Mary at the gate or something or St. Paul at right. the gate or something like that then, you know, those things are not scriptural. And if it is true, then it will be scriptural. Mm-hmm. So I normally say for stuff like that and like, okay, well, you know, if they start talking about a lot of unscriptural stuff, it might be your experience, but that doesn't mean it's not wacko. You know, it, that right. doesn't mean it's not, you know, so, yeah. yeah. And I've heard people describe out-of-body experiences where they've supposedly like wandered into the next room and seen something in the next room that they could have never seen. And then I've heard other people try to debunk that by saying, you know, maybe that as they were being wheeled by on their hospital bed, that they happened to glance into the room and saw something and they just didn't realize it because they were under anesthesia or something like that. You know, like there's all these debates back and forth as to whether these things are real or not. Mm. So honestly, I don't know. So I just don't, you know, go into them at length. So yeah, it's probably counterproductive to do that. And I think we should remind our listeners too that the devil is a master counterfeiter. He can create all kinds of scenarios that you would believe is the real deal and you'd put your faith and trust in those. But just like mm-hmm. Peter said, we have a more sure word. Even though he witnessed a transfiguration, we have a more sure word. In the same situation, we can't rely on these so-called experiences because we'll be easily led astray by them. We have oh, a more yeah. sure word. So. Yeah, I was talking with a 
The Muslim man one time that, or I'm sorry, not a Muslim. He had been Muslim. Uh-huh. He had lived in a closed country. And then one day he told me that he had this vision of sitting on top of a mountain and Jesus appeared to him and told him that he was in fact the Messiah and so forth. Well, he was explaining to me his salvation testimony. Well, I was thankful during the discussion that he didn't rely on this vision that he had or supposedly had in relation to his salvation. But he told me that that seeing that dream or whatever it was that he had caused him to go and search out the truth. And then in searching out the truth, he came to the scriptures and the scriptures, you know, confirmed in his heart that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and he was the son of God and so forth. So he was relying on a scriptural reason, not this vision that he was seeing. So sort of like what MCG was saying a moment ago, you know, if these people talk about this experience that they had, he doesn't really try, you know, to counter that unless they start talking about things that are against scripture or unsound doctrinally and so forth. And I would say that, yeah, I would agree with that idea. Yeah, definitely. So what we're trying not to do in this podcast, I guess, you know, we're not trying to necessarily like tell people that if they had some experience that for sure their experience was false, but we're also not trying to authenticate their experience either. We just, we don't have a biblical foothold one way or the other to say, you know, so. Yeah. So why won't God allow everyone in heaven then? Heaven is this great, as we describe it, street of gold, at least a New Jerusalem street of gold, so pure that it's like transparent glass. God is going to be there. We're going to have a glorified body. No more sin, sorrow, death, tears. Why won't God just allow everyone in heaven? For precisely that reason, if it's so wonderful, he wouldn't want you dragging all your baggage into it. And Christ died to save us from our sin, to save us from all of the effects of the fall. He came to reverse all of that and to redeem and to reconcile all of that. And so you can't go into heaven not having been redeemed. The scriptures talk about, Christ was talking about comparing it to the marriage feast and people who were trying to come in but didn't have the right attire. It's that same concept. You don't belong. You are not one of the redeemed. You can't be there. And if heaven were accessible to anyone, not only would that make it cheap. And it's not cheap. Christ had to pay for it with his precious blood, but it would make God a liar because the Bible calls him holy, good, just. If he were to allow anyone or anything into heaven that has not been in some way redeemed, reconciled, cleaned, cleansed in the way that only he can, then that would make him a liar. That would make him not true to his word. It would make him unreliable which we know he's none of those things. He's very much true to his word. It's a bedrock that we can establish our faith on. And so for that reason, not just anyone can go waltzing into heaven. And that's a really important point to hone in on because I've witnessed to many people who are completely unbothered, unconcerned about the moment they die because they are convinced in their mind that there's a back door into heaven, that Mary will let you in, even though St. Peter won't let you through. You could go around the back door and talk to Mary, or somehow their works will somehow justify them, or this idea that you can be good without God. You just have to be good to get into heaven, which is not true. You have to be holy to get into heaven. And so for those reasons, God won't allow just anyone to go to heaven. Yeah, and we did discuss the topic of purgatory back in episode 64, but I turn it over to you, DW. Anything to add on to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think Jay is, you know, she made some excellent points there. You know, in Revelation, it says that nothing that defileth shall enter therein. And in Isaiah chapter one, in verse 18, 
God says, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And he's talking there about the righteousness of the Lord and having your sin dealt with. And he talks about in Isaiah chapter 53 about how that sin is going to be dealt with by placing it you know, on the righteous servant, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, to sort of summarize what I'm saying here is if you don't allow God to deal with your sins through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're still defiled. And being defiled, you can never enter into heaven because the Bible says that nothing that defileth shall enter therein. And the reason for that is exactly what Jay said, because of the holiness of God. I find the illustration in Isaiah chapter 6 to be one of the, the best illustrations of just how holy God is. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says in verse 1, that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And you know, in Revelation and in various other places, the Bible calls angels holy angels. Those that are in heaven, those that are serving God are holy angels. It says in Hebrews chapter one or two, I can't remember which one, that the angels are ministers of fire. So they're on fire and, and we might ask ourselves why. And the word seraphim here in Isaiah chapter six literally means burning ones is what the word means. And, you know, whenever we see God's judgment whenever we see his holiness oftentimes in the scriptures it's pictured by fire and so these holy angels are ministers of fire because they're holy but at the same time god is so much more holy than these holy angels that they can't even look on him they have to cover their face with two of their wings they can't even stand in his presence they've got to cover their feet with two of their wings and so even though they are holy angels god is so much more holy that they're literally burning up in the presence of his holiness mm. And I don't know of many people that would necessarily ascribe to this view. Like I haven't met anybody and I haven't read any commentaries on it as such. But we mentioned that verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 there earlier, where it says that when we see him, we shall be like him, right? When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The word for there means because. So when he shall appear, we shall be like him for or because we shall see him as he is. And when he shows up in Revelation chapter 20, it says the heavens and the earth fled away because he's so holy. You know, Malachi and in First Peter, it talks about the elements themselves shall burn or shall melt and with fervent heat. And so I think those events are, are synonymous with Revelation chapter 20. God, when he shows up at the great white throne of judgment, he's so holy that the heavens and the earth just can't do anything but burn up and melt away into nothing. And I think that's why we shall be like him, because when we see him, everything in us that is not like him will just burn up. It'll just be gone. And it'll be that final purging. The only thing left will be the things you know, of him that are like him. So we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And it even goes on in the context there to talk about us purifying ourselves because he is pure. And so anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is that those people that don't have him as their savior, that haven't had him purify them to any extent, if they were to come into his presence, their entirety would just burn up. They would just, they would just, <laughs> because he is so holy. And so that's why they're, they can't enter in. That's why they'll be consigned to that awful place called hell.
So how then can they enter in? Can a person be assured of heaven? Can a person be assured to escape that burn up that you're talking about or even hell? And if the answer is yes, how is that possible? Well, you know, as I was thinking through even that previous point tied in with this, you know, this idea of the question that you're asking me now, I thought of Jesus talking to his disciples and talking to the people there in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, Accept your righteousnesses. I'm sorry, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So a lot of people think that through religion, that they can somehow exercise themselves to become better, and even that won't help. The Pharisees and the scribes were the most religious people on earth. They would fast twice in a week. They would tithe. They would circle the globe to make one proselyte. So they were evangelistic. They were orthodox in their practice. They believed the scriptures. They were the most religious people on earth. And Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds the most religious people on earth, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So if there are any listeners out there thinking that, okay, well, you know, maybe I can somehow make myself better or something like that, that's not going to help either. But the question you ask, if nothing that defileth can ever enter in, well, then how can we enter in? And the answer is somewhat simple and yet a bit complex. The Bible talks about the simplicity that is in Christ. So, and that word simplicity means a few parts. So it's not that the gospel is complex, but it does, I think, take some explaining because if we say to someone, what's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? I think that's a little bit too simple. We haven't really explained what those things are. So so how can someone go to heaven, someone that's currently defiled? How can they receive that forgiveness? How can they receive that cleansing? Well, the Bible says in John 1.12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So the simple answer about how to go to heaven, about how to enter in, be to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? And why would God take what Jesus did and allow me to receive that and that be sufficient? Well, when we look at the Old Testament, when we look at the Bible as a whole, we can see that God was satisfied with what Jesus Christ did at Calvary. He even talks about it before the Lord Jesus Christ ever went to Calvary. In fact, in Revelation 13, 8, it says that God the Father and God the Son decided before the foundation of the world, even, that Jesus would come and die on the cross. So God knew that man would fall. He knew that we would become sinners, but he wanted to redeem us. So I would give three reasons why. And the first reason would be that the work that Christ came, he was sent to accomplish a work. And the second reason would be that that is a work that only Christ could accomplish. And the third reason is, is because it's a work that Christ actually did accomplish. So like I mentioned there, before the foundation of the world, God decided that Jesus Christ would have to come and die to pay for the sins of the whole world. In Galatians 4, 4 through 5, it says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them. And that word redeemed means to buy back, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So that was the work that Christ was sent to accomplish, was to redeem those who could not redeem themselves. And that's us. That's all sinners everywhere. And so that's the first point. It was a, a work that Christ was sent to accomplish. The second reason I gave was that it was only a work that only Christ could accomplish. And what do I mean by that? Well, there are lots of details in the Old Testament, over 300 Old Testament prophecies relating to Jesus Christ and so forth. 
And so the reason I say it's only a work that he could accomplish, somebody said, if you took all of the Old Testament prophecies relating to Jesus Christ, and they were quarters, and you laid them on top of each other, and you painted the side of only one quarter, it would cover the entire state of Texas eight feet deep of quarters. And for somebody to be the right one, they would have to walk over and pick up the one quarter that's painted on the one side, and then have to do it the first time. So numerically speaking, it's entirely impossible from a mathematical standpoint for someone to fulfill all 300 plus of those Old Testament prophecies related to Jesus. So in Micah 5.2, it says that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Now, there were lots of Bethlehems in Israel at the time, but Micah 5.2 points out a specific Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrata, which was the Bethlehem that was near Jerusalem. So they would have to be born in a specific town. Psalm 22.16 says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Well, when the psalmist wrote that, crucifixion was not even a form of punishment at the time. It didn't come to several hundred years later. And so that person would have to die in a specific way, and they would have to have their hands and their feet pierced. Isaiah 52, 14, we're told that the righteous servant of the Lord, that his suffering, that his form would be marred more than any man. And when you think about what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, the Jews, when they would beat you with a rod, they would strike you 13 times on the back, then they would turn you to the side, they would strike you 13 times on the right side and 13 times on the left side, that equals 39. And that's why you see Paul saying he was beaten with rods thrice, 39 save one. And so that one stripe that was lacking was supposed to be mercy. But Jesus wasn't beaten by an Israelite, a Jew. He was beaten by a Roman soldier, a professional Roman soldier that used a cat of nine tails. So every time he was struck, you know, the end of each of those lashes would have stone or bone or steel in it. And so every time he was struck, 9, 18, 27, 36, 45, 54, every time he was struck, it wasn't just one lash, it was nine. And he was completely emaciated. I mean, sometimes those lashes would have gone into his neck, potentially his face, it would have ripped into his side and his buttocks and his thighs. I mean, it just totally emaciated him, ripped him to shreds. And it says in Psalm 129, verse 3, the plowers plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. And if I break up a little bit here, I wrote a paper on this one time, and I was crying by the end of this paper, just the devastation that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. And these things were foretold of him hundreds of years before he came. And in the Old Testament, it talks about his garments being parted. Then it talks about they gambled for his coat. It says none of his bones were broken. And all of these things were fulfilled to a letter. He said, you know, Jonah was, you know, his being in the belly of the well was a type of Jesus being in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And this too was fulfilled. You know, Jesus said, that's all the facets. And I said, you know, this is why only Christ could fulfill it. Well, there are two other facets that were necessary, at least two others. And one of them is that he'd have to be God. And the reason that he would have to be God is because he would have to pay for the sins of the whole world. And I don't know if you've ever heard of a doctrine called the impeccability of Christ. I won't like you know, go into like that to the nth detail, but it's talking about the perfection of the blood of Christ. And when we think of Christ paying the price for the sin of the whole world, sometimes we we sort of think of it like he just brought the balance to zero, but you can think of his righteousness almost like a 50 gallon drum of water. And you take a match and you light this match and you throw it into the 50 gallon drum of water. The match immediately goes out. And how much did it affect the 50 gallon drum of water? Basically nothing it still has 50 gallons of water in it. And that match is like the sin of the whole world. When Jesus paid the price for the sin of the whole world, because he's God, 
it did not exhaust his righteousness at all. He is still infinitely righteous. And a man can't even pay for, like in the Psalms, it says that a man cannot pay for the soul of his neighbor. But Jesus paid for the sin of the whole world. And in order to do that, he had to be God. And, but at the same time, he had to be man because he had to die for man. In Hebrews 2.9, it says that he became a man so he could taste death for every man. So the three facets was that he would have to fulfill all of the Old Testament scripture, which is numerically impossible for anybody but the Lord Jesus Christ. Because some of those things that were foretold in the Old Testament now have passed and can never be again. So only one person, it's either Jesus of Nazareth or it's no one ever. And then he also had to be God and he also had to be man. And so it was a work that only he could fulfill. So it was a work that he was given by the Father before the earth was founded even. It was a work that only he could fulfill. And the last reason is because it was a work that he did accomplish. Jesus says in John 18, 37, to this end was I born. And for this cause, I came into the world. In John 1, 27, John the Baptist, looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, says, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, John 19, 30. And so in Isaiah 53, 11, hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus Christ walked the earth, the father said, I shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And so if someone sees themselves as a sinner, the whole reason that God looked and had to see the travail of his son's soul was because of the sin of the world. And so not just everybody else's sin, but my sin, I should have been on that cross. I should have been the one that was emaciated by that Roman soldier's lashing. I should have been the one that had my beard torn out and be spat upon. I should have been that one because I have offended a holy and a righteous God with my sin. And so if I will see myself as a sinner, I will take his payment on my behalf. That's what John means when he says, but as many as received him, not church membership, not baptism, not anything else but the Lord Jesus Christ, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So if someone wants to be clean, like Isaiah chapter one was talking about, though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. If they want to be clean and not defiled so that they can enter in, it's by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. DW, I make fun of you, but it's always a pleasure to have you on. Well, even though you continually hurt my feelings, I come back anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, brother. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To get a hold of us, to support this podcast, or to learn more about Removing Barriers, go to removingbarriers.net. This has been the Removing Barriers podcast. We attempted to remove barriers so that we all can have a clear view of the cross.